0: I'm glad to be here, thankful to join you. And let me begin by simply asking, do you feel that your Christian walk is fruitful? Do you feel that your love for Christ and your Christian experience has played itself out in fruitfulness, in feeling like your purpose as a believer is being accomplished in the day to day? Because what I think is a common experience for us believers is that while we claim to believe in God, And while we cling to specific spiritual experiences with God, one of the key distinctives of our belief system, Jesus, can be absent from our lives. We have trouble connecting the reality of the gospel to my actual daily actions. And here Jesus is in his farewell discourse, as you guys have seen over the last uh, several chapters, and he is teaching his disciples what it looks like to be one of his disciples, really to follow him. And he's going to use a metaphor here in 15, as we just read, of the vine and the branches. And so our structure is just going to follow his teaching. We're going to start with one point, which is the metaphor. And the main idea I'd like to bring out here is that we must abide in Christ in order to be fruitful. We'll look at this metaphor that we must abide in Christ in order to be fruitful. And then Jesus will elaborate upon that metaphor in 9 to 11 and in 12 to 17, showing that abiding in Christ is demonstrated through obedience to his commandments, and we'll see particularly the command to love one another. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's go ahead and jump into the metaphor. Let me reread verses 1 and 2, chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that may bear more fruit." So first, we have to think about the fact that this imagery, this plant metaphor, would not have been uncommon. This is in an ancient agrarian Mediterranean context. They would have been aware of vines and plants and farmers, just like we are. But there's even more context considering the Old Testament. This imagery shows up repeatedly. Let me read just two examples. Here in Jeremiah 2.21, Jeremiah prophesies, so God speaking, Yet I planted you a choice vine. Holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Or consider Psalm 80, which says, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see; Have regard for this vine. And We see this in a few contexts. Typically what's happening when this imagery is used is Israel is the vine and God is like the farmer. And in that relationship, the metaphor is usually, usually being employed to say Israel's doing a bad job being a vine they are not producing fruit very well. They're a wild vine. And so the disciples would have had that awareness, right? They would have faithfully you know, read their Septuagint. They would have known that the vine referred to Israel. So now we need to read this metaphor with a slightly different understanding of the characters. So let's look at the three characters in 15. The first is the true vine is now Jesus. I am the true vine. Second, the farmer, the vine dresser, remains the father, God the father. And then the third, we can see from verse five, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The disciples are the branches. So first, Jesus is the true vine. So this recognition of that Old Testament context kind of makes us see why he is the true vine, right? Israel failed to be fruitful. They failed to produce good. And now we're understanding kind of God's covenant community differently. Before it was farmer, vine. There's this expectation that Israel will be fruitful. They failed repeatedly. But now in their place comes Jesus, who will not fail, who will produce good fruit. Jesus is the true vine. But notice we still have the Father. He's still the farmer. So to some extent, we still see Trinitarian roles at work here. This text will be mostly about Jesus, but you still have God active in this relationship and then the branches are the disciples. So we're gonna look primarily at the relationship between the vine and the branches. That's gonna be our main focus this morning, but before we do, let's just consider the role of the father in verse two. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So that's the father. Every branch that isn't bearing fruit in the vine, the father's taking away. And every branch that does bear fruit, the father, the farmer, is prunes that it'll bear more fruit. So two roles of the Father. Fruitful branches are pruned to produce more fruit and unfruitful ones are taken away. We're faced with an important interpretive question we have to deal with in verse two and in verse six, which is, are we seeing here that we can lose our salvation? Is John suggesting that a branch that is in the vine but is not fruitful, is not loving God, is not responding to obedience, that God will remove that salvation? To do so would be to miss the whole point of our metaphor this morning, right? W- w- we're, the suggestion is that there are two paths here, that those who are fruitful are evidencing that they're in the vine. Consider the branch that's not in the vine, that's lying on the ground, it's dead wood. Fruit's not going to grow on a piece of wood on the ground, separated from the life source of the vine. And so if you do not produce fruit, you're revealing that you are not in the vine. You are never in the vine. The point of the metaphor today is not to explore the theological contours of conversion, right? It's to give two paths. You're either a fruitful branch or an unfruitful one, and the fruitful one is in the vine in Jesus. But also, we see that the Father prunes fruitful branches, which shows that our discussion of fruitfulness today can't separate the fact that God is at work, that we'll repeatedly talk this morning about how we need to be fruitful. We need to abide but we see that God is at work in us, pruning us, shaping us, helping us for that task. Okay, with that said, let's transition in to our focus. We see in verse 3, oh, that transition, he says, Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So Jesus says to the disciples, of those two branches, of those two options, you got, he's kind of assuming you're the fruitful ones. He uses that purification language. You are clean because of the message I've taught you, so you believe in me. In light of that, what should followers of Christ do? So I'm I'm speaking here kind of assuming that the majority of us or many of us are believers in the vine, fruitful branches. What should we do? Let's read verse four. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is his instruction to the disciples. Abide in me. Abide in Christ. This is the calling. So the metaphor we've already kind of established. It's fairly clear that if we want to be fruitful, we have to be attached to the vine. But that's suggesting that Christ, in some sense, produces life for us there's a sense of spiritual vitality that's found in Jesus because he says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we are like that dead branch that can't produce fruit. So let me give three ways that we abide in Christ or three ideas attached to abiding in Christ. Here's the first. Abiding in Christ involves dependence on Christ. Drawing this mainly out of that phrase Apart from me, you can do nothing, but it, it works with the whole metaphor that the branch that's fruitful has to be attached to the vine, right? So it suggests dependence on Jesus. It involves a whole selfless worldview which understands a recognition that apart from Jesus, we are incapable of fulfilling our mission, incapable of being obedient. I think we know this from our experience, right? We, I think uh, either Matt or maybe the music leader mentioned leaning on his own strength, right? Suggesting that maybe he could in some way cultivate godliness in himself. We've all experienced the frustration like you're running in place, right? And here the suggestion from Christ to the disciples is apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we live with that kind of perspective? Do we truly believe that apart from Christ, we can do nothing? Maybe consider evidences of humility in your life, would those closest to you tell you that over the past three, five years that you've grown in humility? Can, Can they see that tangibly in your life and the way you communicate, the way you think? A second aspect of abiding in Christ involves prayer. Let's look at verse seven. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This connects with our first idea of abiding in Christ. If we recognize that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, shouldn't that lead us to our knees to plead to Christ for help? Shouldn't that show us that we need to turn to him? He says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. And lest we make God our magic genie where we can just throw our requests at him. It's conditioned by if you abide in me, right? So there's this built-in condition that we are abiding in Christ. So we're putting our own desires down in place of his, and that we are seeking fruitfulness, so that we want to fulfill our purpose for him, that we want to be faithful disciples, which informs the content of our prayers, that we're going to Jesus and saying, well, I want to be fruitful, and apart from you, I can't do it, so I am running to the vine, to the one that attached me to the vine in the first place, and I'm saying, Lord, help me. So you might consider your prayer life. Some of us are list makers, some are more spontaneous. I don't know what your prayer life looks like, but I'm suggesting less you know, for you to change all the things you're currently praying about, but it's more the kind of tenor and tone of your prayer. Are you praying in such a way that suggests that you are in constant need of Christ's strength, that you need Christ? So, abiding in Christ involves dependence on him. It involves going to him in prayer and then it involves two results of fruitfulness. Look at verse 8, please. He says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here's two things that happen when we abide in Christ and that flows forth in fruitfulness. One, we give God glory, which is fruitfulness, right? That's doing our purpose. That's what we're supposed to do as far as of Christ. When we've experienced the love of Jesus, we're supposed to glorify him. He says, this will occur when you abide in him. So the process of depending on Jesus with your life, that's going to give him glory. And second, it proves you're his disciples. It proves you're his disciples. So a life that involves abiding in Jesus will show that you're a disciple. And I think that's clear if we think about how radically countercultural this lifestyle is. Right? Because it's inherently selfless. I think in a way, I was just talking to my wife Abigail about this, that Christians can be honest about their weakness in a way that no other system of belief tends to be, where everyone is weak. We all know that, right? Everybody. And so sometimes people deal with that through arrogance, trying to override those insecurities, or they cope through self-pity, or whatever they have to do. But for the Christian, we say, yeah, we're weak. I mean, our whole belief system is built around the fact that in our weakness, we have Christ's strength. We lean upon that. And it's so liberating, isn't it, that we can say that to each other, that, yeah, I'm I'm free, that I don't have to in my own strength rescue myself, make myself holy, because I can't anyway. And so when we live that out, a life that's confidently weak, it actually allows us to do more, have strength, to be fruitful, because it's through Jesus, the world sees that, and it proves we're his disciples. They see us valuing things differently, right? These are three ideas connected to abiding in Christ. And this is a calling that we all have as branches. If you've been joined to the vine, he says to be fruitful. There's that warning that if you're not, that evidence is that you may not be in the vine. And that leads us to verse six. We have one more warning. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, here we see the two paths once again, right? Those who abide in Christ, they grow in their love for Jesus, it plays out in fruit. Those who do not abide in Christ he they're gathered and are burned. Now that abiding language, once again, brings that same interpretive challenge, is he suggesting that those who do not continue to love Jesus could eventually lose that place, that status of being in Christ. And we would reject that once again. And maybe for clarity, consider his context. So Jesus would be teaching primarily to Jews. Think about how Jews would be considering this message. I mean, they would have been thinking, if I'm a Jew, I'm fulfilling the law, I'm an ethnic Israelite, I'm already in the vine." they would have thought of themselves as a member of Christ's community, right? However, Jesus is now suggesting a radically different alignment. He's saying, no, to be part of God's covenant community, you have to abide in me personally, the person and work of Jesus Christ, which would have been a radical notion for them. They would have thought they were healthy, fruitful branches. Jesus is saying, if I'm not, if you're not abiding in me, then you're like a dead branch. In fact, you are never in me. Even more specifically, consider Judas. Like Judas is in this group of disciples. Judas would have probably considered himself a branch who's part of the vine. I mean, he knew Jesus personally. He walked with him. But he hears this teaching, and Jesus knows Judas' heart. Judas was not abiding in Christ. Judas didn't lose his relationship with Jesus because he failed to stay in holiness. No, it evidenced that he was never in Christ. This text does not teach we lose our salvation, but rather that there are two choices we have. For those who have accepted the love of Christ, whose eyes have been opened by God, we are called to abide in him, to be fruitful. And if you find yourself this morning relating more to the dead branch, if you find that you do not see a love for Christ developing over the years, you don't see fruitfulness played out in any meaningful way, then there's a warning here. There's a caution. Are you in the vine? The summary of the metaphor here, Jesus is the vine in whom we must abide in order to be fruitful and to glorify God with our lives. Let's move on to the next two sections where Jesus will elaborate upon that metaphor. Let me read uh, 9 to 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Let's stop there, actually. So at this point, Jesus has used the metaphor, and it's been helpful, to understand how they relate to each other, how the disciples and Jesus can relate to one another. However, what a plant metaphor cannot do is fully help us understand the depth of love involved in these relationships. Right? If we just stop at branch and vine, that doesn't quite help us understand the way that the vine deeply loves the branch. Right? There's something deeply relational happening here, and so he moves away from the metaphor and gets more specific. He says, abide, not just abide in me, abide in my love. And he uses a paradigm of the love of the Father with the Son. He does this, kind of as Matt drew out earlier, because you have perfect love demonstrated, and you have perfect obedience, which is exemplary for us. So he says, abide in my love. In other words, when we abide in Christ, what we are abiding in, we're resting in the work that was already accomplished through the cross, And that cross, our salvation, the connection there is Jesus' love for us. The love between God and Jesus was perfect. The love between Jesus and us and those disciples through the cross, which Christ had not gone to yet, right, was perfect. We are to abide in that love. We're supposed to respond to the gospel by abiding in Christ, right? We don't just be fruitful and depend on him and pray to him. Because we're trying to click boxes that are part of kind of our tenets of dull religious fanaticism, right? Rather, we're responding to love that we've been accepted. He tells us how to do this in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So Jesus perfectly obeys the Father who loves him. And why does Jesus obey the Father? Because he loves him, because of the relationship. And now he tells the disciples, listen, when you obey me, you're evidencing our relationship. You're revealing that you love me. And now he's, of course, talking about a long-term obedience, a life that's committed to Jesus. When I, was a, uh, when I was really young, my dad, whenever I'd ask him for help, I'd say, Dad, will you help me with this? He would say, yes, do you know why? I'm like, no, why? He's like, because I love you. That was his sweet little phrase right? And then he did it so consistently that eventually he'd be like, do you know why? like, because you love me. And then, like, when we're teenagers, he'd be like, Dad, you gonna do this because you love me? And he's like, fine, you know. (laughs) But what he was planning in our minds through the years was that he didn't do things for us out of paternal obligation, right? All of his actions, and as you parents know, sacrificial actions, were out of love. It was love-fueled actions. And here, we're being called to love-fueled obedience. That we don't simply obey Jesus, like we said, have a sense of obligation, but have response to what's already been done for us through the gospel. You already heard this taught, last chapter, it says in 14, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's been a consistent teaching of Jesus. In 1 John 2, he writes, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You have a consistent thread through the New Testament that Long term obedience evidences a changed heart, a transformed heart, which connects to what we've taught in the metaphor, the warning that if you don't see that long term obedience, that reveals something about our hearts. And then he gives this caution in verse 11. Not really a caution, more encouragement. He says, I've spoken this to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So, lest we hear this call to be obedient, as some kind of restrictive, oppressive lifestyle. He says, actually, the selfless Christian life, which loves Jesus and then obeys him fully, that's actually the only way to full joy. That's the only way to experience real joy. And now we really see how abiding in love proves we're Christ's disciples. Because a member of the world, someone separate from Christ, a dead branch, as they live for themselves, they think that they're attaining pleasure right? They think that they are chasing satisfaction. And they see this Christian experience as restrictive and oppressive and separate from fun or joy or pleasure. And Jesus says it's the opposite, right? If you live for pleasure, you are not going to find joy. But actually, by obeying me out of love, that's the only way to experience lasting satisfaction, I recently heard an atheist describing the Christian experience as if it's this miserable investment. Like, we have a terrible 70, 80 years of no fun hoping for a never-ending vacation, right, heaven. That's what we got our eyes on. And he's so deeply misunderstanding the source of joy, right? What, What we look for in heaven is not to just avoid responsibility. We're looking towards being with Christ fully. And the joy we have now is to the extent that we have Jesus, right, what we're looking for is the fullest, completest experience we've already had in Jesus. And so obeying and responding to him in love, we're just chasing that satisfaction. We're obeying him now like we want to obey him forever. That's how we have true, lasting joy. In our last section, 12 to 17, he's taught that we abide in him and demonstrate that through obedience to his commands. And now he gives us a major command by which we can do these things. We can apply this principle. And that is the new commandment, verses 12 and 13. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, there's still a call, we know, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. But genuine love for God will lead to genuine love for the Son, And he says here that genuine love for the Son reveals itself in obedience to his commands. And what's one of the specific commands that we can obey? And by doing so, we show that we're his followers? Love one another. D.A. Carson says that by an unbreakable chain, love for God is tied to and verified by love for other believers. And so here Jesus has connected the gospel to our everyday experiences with one another. And is that true in your experience? When you consider how you interact with other people, can you see the love for Christ poured out and and fueling those actions, fueling your obedience? Some of us, I think, can allow our personalities to kind of get in the way of this particular command. Maybe others have other uh, excuses or, or possibly reasons why it's difficult for us to love one another, but the love that we're called to is compared to his love for us. He says, It's the love I have loved you. And then he says, Greater love is known than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. So clearly alluding to what act of love? The crucifixion, our salvation, the cross. Jesus laying his life down for us. So whoever in your mind right now might seem too unlovely to love is not more unlovely than we were when Jesus laid down his life for us. Sometimes we might read verse 13 and think, wait a second, Jesus, I I feel like dying for your enemy would be greater love. However, two things in that. First, he's talking to friends, he's talking to disciples. So within that context, he's saying, you guys who are friends, love one another, right? Literally, like Peter and John, like love one another. And we know from like Romans 5 that that God loved us, so while we are sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies to him when he extended love to us. But the call for us as fruitful branches, as those attached to the vine, is we need to love one another and love one another sacrificially the way that we have been loved by Jesus. He continues exploring this friendship relationship in 14 14 and 15. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. That initially sounds like a rough view of friendship, right? (laughs) However, he's already established that obedience to him evidences the relationship that's present. So he says, listen, you are obeying me because you abide in my love, and therefore we are friends. And we shouldn't expect friendship with Jesus to perfectly mirror human friendship, right? He is both our friend and our king. So they are his friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants. So the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So here Jesus suggests what's the difference between being a servant of Jesus and being a friend of Jesus. It's revelation. He is revealed to them. This makes sense if you think about the relationship of a slave to a master. A master doesn't meet up with the slave and say, hey, this is what we're going to do, this is the plan, you know, develop that camaraderie, because revealing that information suggests intimacy, and that intimacy, the disciples clearly had with Jesus. Jesus was constantly teaching them about what he was going to do, where he was going, his plan. He had pulled them in as friends, and that applies to us as well. Look how God has revealed these truths to us. Once again, we are not just an army of mindless drones, right? religious fanatics, zealots, just doing whatever is told to us. We have revelation. God has chosen to bring us in as friends, to pull us close to the gospel and say, this is my plan. He says, I'm going to redeem creation. I'm going to raise up my people, my children, and you are going to reign with me forever. If we are a believer, we are his friends. However, lest the disciples get puffed up, look at his, the way he begins verse 16. He says, you did not choose me. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And here he ties back the purpose here of his teaching is that they'll be fruitful. They need to obey. Yes, they have been pulled in as friends. They have been loved so deeply and sacrificially that their obedience should come out of a wellspring of love. But they've been chosen and appointed to do what? To go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It should be lasting fruit. And he says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He repeats the sentiment that if we need to be fruitful, and if we can be only fruitful by abiding in Jesus, if apart from him we can do nothing, and we've been chosen, set apart, called for this task, then we should pray. And we should recognize where our strength and life comes from. We should go to our knees and pray to the vine. And I would encourage you today that if you are a believer, then he has called you, he has chosen you, that he has appointed you to bear fruit that lasts, that abides. You might say, how do I do that? How can I be fruitful? He says, abide in me. Run to Jesus. Run to his word. See him and his strength. Consider what has been accomplished through the cross for you. Consider how unworthy we are to have this status as his friend. And then let that fall forth in obedience. Let that affect the way you love one another. Let that affect the way you think of evangelism, preaching the gospel, personal (coughs) holiness. And when you feel frustrated in that task and you find that that is difficult, he says twice in this passage, ask me whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. You abide in me and you seek to be fruitful, then fall to your knees and pray and it will be done for you.